May the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the communion of the Holy Ghost, and the fellowship of saints abide with us now and forever. Amen. Before we turn to God's word this evening, I'd like to convey greetings on to all of you here from the southwestern part of the United States, from Los Angeles and Phoenix, also from the Portland area where we were a month ago. They heard we were coming, they desired to send their greetings to you, so be greeted of them. For this evening's meditation, we will turn to a short portion of God's Word, as is recorded in the second book of Kings, in the second chapter, and we will read from the 19th verse through the 22nd, in Jesus' name. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground is barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth on to the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters, there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. Amen. I think of this prophet so often, in the manner in which he was called to this office by his predecessor, Elijah. When God revealed unto Elijah that he would have to have a successor, he came unto this Elisha who was working in the field and he told him to drop his plow and follow him. And Elisha said, well, I must go and bid my family goodbye and Elijah told him that if that was what he had to do, just stay. And we remember Elisha followed Elijah. And everywhere Elijah went, he told Elisha, stay here, I'm going to go hence. This was in Bethel and Gilgal. Finally at the River Jordan, Elijah asked Elisha, why are you following me? And Elisha told him that today when thou art taken up, I want a double portion of your spirit to fall on me. Seems like a strange request, doesn't it? Here was Elijah, a powerful prophet of God, one who spoke and at his word, the heavens were shut for three and a half years that it did not rain. And again, Elijah prayed to God, and it rained. A powerful prophet, was he not? And along comes Elisha to be his successor, and requests that he would have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I remember how Elijah answered. He said, if I am taken up today and you see me and my mantle falls, it will be so. And we remember that when Elijah was taken in the fiery chariots and his mantle fell, Elisha picked up the mantle and he immediately, or he took off his own garments and picked up the mantle and robed himself. And he immediately said, where is the God of Elijah? 
The word tells us that he smote the river with the mantle and the waters of the Jordan parted and he walked across on dry land. He immediately tested the Spirit of God to see what portion he had received. No sooner had he accomplished this that he was journeying to Jericho and those that were servants of the prophet wanted to go and search for Elijah that maybe he fell upon the mountaintop or in a valley and Elisha did not want to grant them the permission to go but when they persisted he allowed them to go but when they came back empty then they approached Elisha in this manner about the city of Jericho and tells him behold I pray thee the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth but the water is not and the ground is barren what they were telling him was that the water that was here in Jericho had something bad in it that caused even the vegetation to throw off the seed before it would come to bear. The ground would not bear because of the water. Nothing would grow and mature because of the water. How does this apply unto us in our walk of faith pertaining unto this water this water of life that is before us how is it that we would come to this water to drink and receive from it but only receive a portion that would be edifying to the flesh satisfying for the outward thirst but would not bring forth fruit that this word would bear from within I'm speaking of the fruits of righteousness we know that there are many in the world today that handle this word we know that the Lord even in several instances spoke about the misuse of this word that he never gives it in any other manner but in truth but if men are not obedient unto the truth of this word it were better that he would put it to usury that he would receive his own with interest we see this happening in the world today to a great degree this word which it tells of it will not return unto God void but it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent now we know that it is the will of God that all who are called would come unto repentance and to the obedience of this word that is the desire of our heart is it not but as we know the enemy is so cunning that he comes to us so many times as an angel of light I only speak of this from experience that has happened in my own spiritual walk how he has come so decept deceptively so many times presenting this word to try to transform this flesh rather than that portion which has to answer to God the spiritual portion the soul of man we know that men can err in this word the word teaches us that Jesus Christ whom to know aright 
is life and salvation. How much do we hear the word of God preached today pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ? The world is filled with it, is it not? How much do we hear of this word preached of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleansing man from sin? Even that is spoken in abundance. But of the multitude that is spoken of the Lord when it comes to the blood, the followers dwindle. How much of this word is spoken pertaining to the forgiveness of sins and of the priesthood? And again, we know that this is preached, but again it begins to dwindle in number. But now, what is it to eat and drink of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might have life in him? This is what I believe we have to see in that which Elisha was doing with this water, to see what it is that this word must contain in order that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ aright. That it is not something that we can err in because of our reasoning or our own mental abilities to understand this word. The first thing we see what Elisha tells these servants, he tells them, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. A new vessel was required. Why a new vessel for this salt? The word teaches us, even as John began to preach in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance, a denial of oneself, a denial of one's own understanding, a spiritual new birth, a new vessel. And we know that this new vessel is not something that we can fashion ourselves by understanding God's word. But this new vessel comes as a spiritual work from the Heavenly Father. Remember the word tells us that not all that come unto me and say, Lord, Lord, shall enter in. This new cruise, I believe, is the new man that God grants unto us through repentance and the remission of sin. How have we received this new vessel then in this repentance and forgiveness of sins? Is it something that we have done that man has required of us? Or is it something that was lacking within that caused us to seek for an inner peace, an inner satisfaction? Let's think back for a moment to the very first example of where man became disturbed over his deeds. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember God had told Adam and Eve that of the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat. And the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And we all remember how they became beguiled by the devil, causing Eve to eat of that forbidden fruit and giving it on to her husband to eat. Remember the consequences there of their eating. They immediately went and hid themselves from God. 
They tried to fashion aprons for themselves of leaves to cover their nakedness. They hid from God. There was something wrong, wasn't there? Did they have a desire within for something to change? We know that the word tells us that when God came to walk through the garden in the cool of the afternoon, he couldn't find Adam and Eve, and he had to call on to them. And when they answered, God asked, Why have you hidden yourselves? And they said, Because we are naked. And God asked them, Who told you that you're naked? And they began to relate of how the devil had beguiled them. Sin had fallen upon them. Now, the question is, How did they know that sin had come on them? What was it that triggered this within them that they would go hide themselves and to try and hide their nakedness? Was it the letter of the word that God spoke to them? I don't believe so. I believe it is that which God placed into every man that has entered into this life the conscience. This is something that man has to deal with in this life. The condition of his soul depends on the care of his conscience. This is what Adam and Eve found out, did they not? They had to experience what it was to be disobedient unto God to be restored unto God. And we know from God's word that God was aware that this was going to happen because the word teaches us before the foundations of the earth were cast, the lamb was slain. The Lord Jesus Christ was offered as atonement for man's sin. God in his infinite wisdom saw that his creation was weak but he did not leave us without inward knowledge of our weakness. Now I know that the conscience is only as good as the keeping of it. Now we have this word which, if it is used aright, keeps that conscience active. I know I have heard over the years, many times spoken, you can never trust the conscience because it can be conditioned. Why would anyone want to condition a conscience other than to hide sin? But we know that when man's work enters in, conscience goes dead. We see what happened to the children of Israel after they had partaken of that Passover lamb. They had been delivered out of Egypt by no other means than the blood on the doorpost of their house. The blood that was taken from that Paschal lamb. This was their experience of deliverance out of Egypt. Pharaoh would have let them go many times during the plagues that came upon Egypt, but the word plainly tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let them go. We see that God had a plan by which we are delivered from sin and set free. We rejoice in this deliverance because we are not hindered by flesh if we follow the manner in which God has established our redemption. But we see that the children of Israel, when they were let out of Egypt, and the manner in which they were let out, 
And yet, when they reach the wilderness, they begin to murmur against God. They murmured for water. God gave them water from the rock. They murmured for something to eat, and God gave them manna from heaven. They murmured for meat, and God gave them quail from the sea. Moses was on the mount speaking with God, and the children of Israel begin to tell Aaron, make for us a God, for we know not where this Moses is, and make for us a God to go before us. We remember that Aaron gathered all their gold, cast it into a fire, and out came the golden calf, the God of Egypt. And they said, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. What a grievous sin. It was so grievous that God was going to destroy that people. And he said he would make of Moses a great nation. Utterly destroy them. What was the nature of that sin that God was going to destroy them? The nature of it was that they had spoken against that which delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. In New Testament language, we would have to say it was as blasphemy of the Holy Ghost because God was going to destroy them. God told Moses, step aside, I will make of you a mighty nation. I'm going to destroy this people. How did Moses answer? He answered as, I would say that it would be impossible for man in his reasoning to answer as Moses answered God. He said, either forgive them their transgression or blot my name out of the book. It would seem as though Moses was tempting God, would it not? This is the nature of man to judge in this manner. It was not so. Moses was speaking from a heart of faith. Moses was speaking of the grace he had experienced being called of God. And he knew that the promise of his soul's salvation did not exist through the lineage of the priesthood of which Moses was. Being of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of the priesthood, was not his salvation. His salvation was to come through these people that God was going to destroy. For God had promised that deliverance would come through the seed of Judah. Moses saw his salvation hanging in the balance. What good would his name be in any book what book would there be if the seed line did not continue? And we see immediately that God repented of that which he had said, but now he told Moses, those laws that I spoke to you previously, you are to give unto the children of Israel. And those that have murmured against me shall never enter into my rest. And this is their penalty. My righteousness will be before them. They have ceased to believe in the promise through the seed line. Now they must fulfill this law of demands. Beginning at the Ten Commandment law, through the ceremonial law, through the sacrificial law, and the civil laws. 
to be fulfilled in every point in order to be saved. But we see it was impossible before God said they will never enter into my rest. But this is what they became subject to because of what? Total and complete unbelief in the seed line promise. They were willing to worship in everything outward. But in the promise of the seed line, they rebelled against God. Now we see that something was lacking, wasn't it? There was something so lacking that would cause them to begin to look to the outward rather than to that which satisfies the soul. There is only one thing that is lacking that man would make such misjudgments. That is that salt that Elisha here wanted to put into this new cruise. And he took this salt in this new cruise and he goes to forth to the spring of the waters where the waters begin. And he casts the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death for barren land. Salt in a new cruise to the fountains of water. In God's word, we see that one thing was essential even to those that wandered in the wilderness, worshiping in that tabernacle that was set before them, pertaining to the priest's office. First there was the ephod that they had to put upon themselves, and then they put upon themselves the breastplate of judgment. Upon this breastplate were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel engraved upon stones. But foremost on that breastplate were two stones. One was called the Urim, the other was called the Thummim. One represented light, and the other righteousness. The priest had to be clothed in this manner before he could fill his office. The names of the twelve tribes were to be written on that breastplate carried close to the priest's heart. The weight of those tribes was upon him in putting on this breastplate pertaining to sacrifice that he was to offer for the people and for his own sins. A righteous judgment was what this represented. The priest's office had to be established in the light of a righteous judgment pertaining to the people. What was the righteous judgment toward these people for their sins? It was in the offering that the priest was to make within the Holy of Holies. That which God would either honor or reject, depending on how that had been offered, if it had been offered in accordance with his word, and man had not touched the offering, God would consume it by fire from heaven. How is this on through the New Testament Paul tells the Ephesians pertaining to our walk to put on the whole armor of God does he not and also this breastplate of righteousness if it is in light and in righteousness it represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his offering for our sins. It does not deal with the priesthood. It does not deal with the outward worship. 
that we see so much today. The word teaches us that when you judge, judge a righteous judgment. The word tells us in that passage that is quoted beyond all passages, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have eternal life. He came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ, whom to know aright, is life and salvation. What is the nature then of this salt that is in this cruise and what does it do? We know that we use salt for seasoning to bring out flavor in our food, don't we? It enhances the flavor of the food. We know that when salt has no flavor left in it, it isn't worth anything. It is just dead weight. So is the judgment of God toward a sinner if it does not appeal unto that hungering and longing that is within us that God has instilled unto us are ye hungering for his righteousness not a demand by man to follow some order so many times people misunderstand what is said and I don't want any misunderstanding pertaining to the forgiveness of sins it is of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the book of Hebrews pertaining to going on to perfection, and he names the steps of not laying again the foundations, but going on to perfection, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand one thing. Man is able to duplicate the principles of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and be void of the Spirit of God. This is the outward worship that comes from the flesh. By no means do I belittle the principles of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are not to be misused. They are not to be mistreated and our salvation is not in them. But our salvation is in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, in his grace. If we have tasted of this kind of judgment by God, that the salt of his judgment has brought peace unto our souls. Is not this also the judgment that we want to make to our fellow man? But we hear so much today of the demands of the flesh pertaining even unto repentance. Man begins to judge, and what is his judgment? Man in himself does not judge, man in himself only accuses. This comes from the flesh. If man has not been partaker of this righteous judgment, he can only judge by the sight of the eye and the hearing of the ear. And the word teaches us this is not the way the Lord judges. But his judgment is a righteous judgment. It is established in righteousness in his perfection. If we begin to judge one another outwardly or by that which we might hear of one another, rest assured the salt is missing. It is not that our salt is of the nature that we rebuke for everything that we observe one of another that might be out of line. That is not salt. The word tells us that have your speech seasoned with salt. It is not that our speech is seasoned with 
or that our speech is with salt seasoned with grace, but it is rather with grace seasoned with salt. This gives the flavor to the grace that if God has been merciful to me, I want to make known of this mercy to everyone. I don't want to have anyone found outside of this mercy or God's forgiveness. I make no demands upon anyone to repent. The only exhortation is to believe in that which God has provided for us, the righteousness which is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not the righteousness that is the demand of man one toward another. Think in the case of the Apostle Paul when he was Saul, of how he judged the matters. He was there when Stephen was called before the council of the chief priests. He heard what Stephen spoke to them pertaining to the hardness of their hearts, to the hardness of the hearts of their fathers that would not hear of the promise that God had made. And we see that heaven was so opened up to Stephen that he beheld the Son of God standing before the throne. Stephen saw that his salvation was being provided for before God's throne through the intercessory power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chief priests even beheld Stephen's face as though it was that of an angel. And what did they do? The word tells us that they gnashed their teeth and demanded that he be taken out in stone. For what work? For what work was Stephen taken out in stone? For making known of the grace that is in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of that promise. <coughs> to believe in that. This is what Stephen believed in. And we remember that Saul was there. And when Stephen was stoned, Saul held the coats of those that stoned him. And he thought he was doing God's service. He thought he had won a victory when Stephen's mouth was closed. And he received orders to close all the other mouths of anyone that would speak in the name of Jesus. But to remember what happened to him. There when the Lord smote him with blindness on the road to Damascus. Caused him to say, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Why kick against the pricks? What was he telling Saul? He was telling him, Why are you resisting the grace that is trying to be brought to you? through the gospel message of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a gift. He was trying to earn it, wasn't he? And in his great fleshly efforts and works, he persecuted the living church. The interesting part of this is that he tells of his life later how when as a Pharisee, he said, pertaining to the law, he was blameless, without sin. But he tells them that, but when sin revived, I die. How did sin revive within him? What was it that caused sin to come into him when he said he was blameless in the works of the law, pertaining to all the sacrifices the fulfilling of God's holy and righteous Ten Commandment law. But he says that when the commandment became alive, it slew him. How did it become alive? It became alive 
through that gospel message that he heard. He began to resist that message because it brought a troubling to his conscience. The conscience he had trained so well by the letter of the word that he had no sin. He could stand and hold the coach that stoned Stephen and not be guilty of any sin. This is how dead the conscience can become by following the letter of the word. Now we can easily see that, well, Paul as a Pharisee, Saul as a Pharisee was blinded. But can we see that man is so cunning that he can preach the forgiveness of sins in the same manner as Saul stood holding the coats of those that stoned Stephen. The day is upon us. The signs are here. They are not somewhere distant. The Lord's coming is at hand. All scripture pertaining to the fulfillment of the kingdom, I believe, is before us. That which the Lord himself spoke about as being the last sign to look upon for the end of the church already exists. That which he spoke to his disciples when they asked him to show. And the Lord took them through his timetable, through his own suffering and death, the destruction of Israel, of all the pestilences and wars and rumors of wars, and he said, none of this is the time of the end. But then he tells them, but when you see the prophecy of Daniel come to pass, when the daily sacrifice is removed and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, stand in the holy place. This is the warning that the Lord gave. And we know that the daily sacrifice is taken away when righteous judgment has been set aside. When man begins to judge by the sight of the eye and the hearing of the ear, there is no righteous judgment. The Lord's judgment does not exist. But when grace as a free gift is offered without any merit without any works of the flesh but that it makes us a beggar of grace and it seems that even salvation is beyond us seems that we are without hope rest assured the Lord is calling and if he calls and we answer his call by believing his word of truth to become beggars of his grace, to receive the forgiveness of our sins. Through the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the doctrines of men, but in the Lord's perfection, that which he provided for us on Calvary. This is the grace that we are looking for. This is the message that is given unto us. Elisha healed these waters by the righteous judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us, so the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha which he spake. Such a strange thing about this word that we have before us. We can read it from morning till night. We can ponder it. We can think we have revelations pertaining to it. Luther says in this manner, the word is a mute word. It will never be pertaining to your salvation. Is this true? What does the word say of itself? 
by the foolishness of preaching men come unto repentance is that by the demands of the flesh is that by the demand of man by the foolishness of the preaching of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ pertaining to this word. This word is healed. It yields its fruit. The fruits of righteousness. What are the fruits of righteousness? Remember what the fruits of the flesh are. Anger, malice, wrath. These are not the fruits of the Spirit. Love. Meekness, patience, oh, those are so contrary to our flesh. Those are gone. This is what the gospel does to us. When the judgment is right pertaining to this word, it's free grace. Luther didn't mince any words about this word. We cannot make it a mute word. We have received it by grace. It must be preached by grace. We have not received it by a demand. We cannot make a demand upon men. God is the provider of our salvation. I cannot explain this word to you in any manner that you could understand it to your soul's salvation. But the Spirit of God intercedes for the spoken word it enters the heart of man and uproots the works of man makes them manifest in his conscience to give him the unrest that Saul experienced that unrest was so great that he warred against the church do we see any signs of that today in the living church Warring against the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? I believe we see it in abundance today. I had to warn some men one time because they opposed this nature of preaching. They came and told me so. And they were very angered at me over certain judgments I made pertaining to this word in this manner as we have spoken this evening. I had to give them this warning. I said, you might be satisfied tonight, or today, today, to attack me with words. But if you follow in the manner that you are going, rest assured there's a day coming, you won't be satisfied with an attack of words upon me. You'll demand my blood. He had no answer. They disappeared as quickly as they came. You see that the heart of man is so cunning that it wants to twist every word of truth that they would have something of themselves in it to cause you to become a follower of them and their commandments. And look at Jesus Christ does not do that. He sets us free of all accusation. He places us in his kingdom and the Father sends on to us his spirit. Have you ever tasted of the spirit of God that has brought grace to your heart? I have had to say time and time again when we see that in this world there are those that are seeking for some satisfaction, some feeling of elation and satisfaction. I have had to say often, there is nothing to compare in this world or in this life to the small moment's visit when the Spirit of God comes to warm our hearts with the assurance that we are the children of God by faith not by any of our own merits. Not because we have repented, not because we have received the forgiveness of sins, not because we have done any work of righteousness, but because the God has allowed us to believe in his work. I had an experience in this not too many years ago. 
or had erred. You say to err is to be human. I must be extremely human because I err so often. But they are less.